good, so we don't have to do it again. Um, so let us pray before we, we dive in into today's sermon. Heavenly Lord, we, we pray today that your spirit will move among us, that um, your word will be implanted in our hearts. Let us enjoy and take the, the sweet nectar of your wisdom, of your word, and we pray that as we read and hear that you're applying that knowledge to our lives, that you're bringing not only facts and wisdom and, and plain knowledge, but also uh, a, a way to, to live the truth that we are learning from, from you. I pray that you will bring clarity, that my exposition exalts your name and respect your word. Don't allow me to put any words in your mouth. Bring fear to my heart and reverence to this holy duty that I'm entrusted with. I pray and give thanks. Amen. All right. So, last Sunday, we started our series on the book of Ruth, a beautiful story crafted to show us God's providence, how he, through his sovereign design, works everything for the good of his people and his glory, and how ultimately he is at the work of of fulfilling his covenantal promise of bringing a redeemer for his people. We were introduced to the time of the judges, a dark period of time where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And to this man, Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilian. This man, an Ephrathite, resident of the region of Bethlehem of Judah, a man used to the wealth of the land, and by extension, personal wealth. This is, a, this is a wealthy man. This is a wealthy group of people. Bethlehem, the, the name of the, of the city, is the house of bread because it was close to um, several streams of water. Considering that Israel was an agricultural um, society, water was a high-valued resource. So when the seasons were right and the seasons would come, Bethlehem, the house of bread, will burst and, and production. So they will never be lacking of bread. But we found out that uh, in the time where, where Ruth is, is described, there's precisely the lacking of bread. There's, there's a famine in the land. There's no food. So if Elimelech finds himself in, in this tight spot, the famine is threatening his well-being and his families. And here's where we see that the expression, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, is not just a dramatic slogan to portray a period of time in the history of Israel, but it serves as a direct look to the heart of the people and to the different ways that sin is affecting them. The trials and troubles that Israel was suffering were instruments in the hand of a God to bring his people to repentance, to make them return to him in humbleness, dependency, and adoration. Instead of seeing that the hand of the Lord was in fact working all these things to bring a revival in the heart of his people, they took it as an indicator as if God was forgetting them. They saw their predicament, and instead of turning to the Lord, their reaction was, the Lord is no longer with us, he has rejected us, but they couldn't be more wrong. And I want to take a, a small detour to a well-known passage for all of us um, in, in the New Testament, James chapter 1. We, we already went through a, a, a whole series of, 
of, of the book of James. And I want to make this connection between what we see here, what we saw here on, on last Sunday, and what the New Testament brings, the, the, the application for, for the situation. This is, this is like a way that we, we use Scripture, the organic aspects of Scripture. Uh, we see situations. We can go to the New Testament and see the deep um, aspects of theology. So in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we can assume that as James reminds the dispersed church of Jerusalem, that God is actually invested in making the faith of his people stronger. And that he will use these different trials to produce steadfastness. But if we are struggling in our life, as probably the church in Jerusalem was struggling in this period of time, and as the Israel was struggling in that period of time of the judges and Ruth, if we are struggling to see the divine purpose of God in our trials and what to do, James encourages us to pray. Verse 5, if any of you lack, lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, this was the problem with Israel and Elimelech, and, and probably sometimes ours. They could not see the goodness of the Lord in these different trials. They were blinded to the providence of God, and instead of acting in covenantal faith, they went away from God. Not just from the land, but ultimately from within, in their hearts. Where their hearts were shifting away. But check how, is James, how James brings a conclusion, to, a conclusion to this. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, if trials and troubles are in the providence of God, instruments in His hands, and His sovereign hands, to make us grow, we can consider them, these trials and troubles, a good gift. This is what it means to be in, in covenantal relationship with God. When we face these trials, when we face the difficult troubles of life, the existence, the, the pain of living we can consider them as a good gift. It's totally opposite to what the world teaches, to what the world encourages to, uh, to do. The wisdom of heaven is not the wisdom of earth. It's turning things around. They are a good gift. And the strengthening, the strengthening of our faith and the steadfastness that will lead us to its full effect and make us perfect and complete will be the perfect gift from above. Trials and troubles in God's sovereign hands are a, are a good gift for us. This is, this is the difference between um, the good gift and the perfect gift. So there's two words here that sound the same, but in the original language, um, they pick different actions or, or things. So the good gift is what is given. 
And what is given sometimes in our lives are trials and tribulations. But the good gift, the, it's, a, it's a faith that grows in strength, that produces steadfastness. And this is what Elimelech denied his family from. And I'm wondering how many times we have denied our families from that as well, or our hearts of that. Instead of enjoying the covenantal blessings of the Lord, he took his family even further away. And we know how that ended. They go to the land of Moab. And, 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 the, and the scene is pretty much everyone dies. It goes from bad to worse. But since God is invested in displaying his steadfastness, we saw that he is drawing for himself people from every nation and every place he pleases. And in this case, a young Moabite woman named Ruth, whom after the events led by her Naomi and Orpah, on the way back to Bethlehem, plead herself not only to Naomi, but to the Lord Yahweh himself. Entering not only to the, to the part of Israel people, but into the covenantal faith of Yahweh. Ruth's declaration and portrait of her conversion should make us not only consider how the Lord drew us near to him, but also how we reacted how, to what happened in our hearts, in our lives, at the realization of the steadfastness of the Lord for us. How his grace changed us. And how he has been continuously involved in our path every step of the way. So now chapter 2. I have, I have titled the sermon, Uncertain Times, Certain God. And as a subtitle for this portion, I have used a literary tool. It's a phrase. When the third person narrator knows more than the um, character, the main character. Little did she, she know, little did he know. We know, but they, they don't know yet. So we're getting there. Now it has been stated that nothing happens by chance. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in chance. The cosmos is not led to just go around randomly in chaos, but is actually guided by the providential hand of the Lord to work all things for his glory and the good of his people and for the completion of his redemptive plan. God's providence is moving in all circumstances of life and history to bring about his good and perfect plan, and that's something for us to keep always present. Keep always present that the providence of God is moving in all circumstances of life and history to bring about his good and perfect plan. At the same time, we need to consider this. Don't think that this takes from us our accountability and the responsibility of our choices. We are responsible for the choices, for the decisions we make. And this mystery is never fully explained in scriptures. How do those two things fit together? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And this is heavy. <laughs> this is very, very heavy. A very theological issue. You can, you can Google uh, on, on YouTube and you will find thousands of hours of videos trying to explain this. 
<coughs> Those are twin, twin truths. That's a, that's a tongue twister. Those are twin truths that run parallel. They will always run parallel. They will never come together. Legitimately, they are what they are. And the fact that you and I don't understand how they go together only proves that we are less than we should be. It doesn't say anything about God. It is our inability to harmonize those two things as a, as, as a reflection of our fallenness. How can I harmonize the two concepts, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? My answer is I don't, I can't. <laughs> they can be harmonized in the human mind. But, but realize this, our minds are finite and collectively we are puny compared to the infinite, vast and limitless mind of God. And all I can tell you is that in the word of God, this truth run parallel. And the answer is to believe them both with all of your heart. And the one divine sovereignty will inform our worship and the other human responsibility will motivate our lives. And if you have more questions about this subject, I'm sure Paul can, can answer those. <laughs> but what do we know? But do we, what do we know? What we know is this, that our responsibility as believers is not only to trust in the Lord's good sovereignty, but also to pursue love, to grow in faith, and to obey His commandments. And today we'll take a deeper look to this. In chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, we will gaze to God's mercy and His providential guidance. Now, so this chapter opens the curtain to these two widowed women back in Bethlehem. But let's quickly remember how chapter 1 ended. Naomi, upon her return to the land, is asking to not be called, to, to not be called Naomi, but Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very, very bitterly with me. And that is the last time we heard that name. <laughs> the Lord did not allow Naomi to maintain that bitter state. Everybody, my name is not Naomi anymore, call me Mara, and no one ever calls her Mara. <laughs> she is always Naomi. This is the Lord not allowing her to define herself based on his, her current circumstances. And I think it's a beautiful thing to notice, that the Lord is not allowing her to stay like that. No, Naomi, your name means pleasant, your name means beautiful, and you will live up to that. The Lord knows what's coming to Naomi's life. So she will live to the meaning of her name. And look upon the blessings of the Lord. We have this word um, relative here in verse 1. This one refers to, in a sense, to the one who is known. In some passages of Scripture, the same word might also appear as friend. But in the next phrase, we know that this man Boaz was from the same clan slash family than Elimelech. So this Boaz is a friend of Naomi's late husband, but also someone from his family. And actually in chapter 4, verse 3, says, Then he said to the Redeemer, to, to Boaz, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative Elimelech. 
and they were um, and they were relative in this original and this passage in the original language can be translated literally as brother. Now, it is unclear based on the information at hand if this term is a, is a term of, of belonging. It was common for the people of Israel to call themselves brothers as, as we call brothers and sisters in church. So it will be kind of like, it, it can be that in that same way. Or that it, Boaz indeed was a brother of Elimelech. Families back in, back in those days were massive, were big. So it wouldn't be too far out to think that there might be some closer connection than we might think. But we don't, we don't have that certainty based on the, um, on the information. So I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you both. It could be a, a term of, of belonging to the people of Israel or, or could be that it was in fact a brother to Elimelech. Another thing is that we are reminded of Ruth, um, Ruth's ethnicity, the Moabite, um, to keep in our minds that she is an outsider, a foreigner in Israel. But also in this couple of verses, from, from verse 1 to 3, uh, we can see a glimmer of Ruth's heart. Um, her plea to Naomi wasn't an emotional one. She meant when she said, where you go, I'll go. And they're going back to the land, not thinking that, oh, when we get there, like, you know, we're going to have food and we're going to be fine. Everything's going to be peachy. So, yeah, let's go. Like, they know that they're going as two widows back to a land that is not very kind for people in that situation and not very kind to foreigners, especially Moabites. Because the relationship between Israel and Moab is, is not the, the best one. In fact, it's a very terrible one. So we, we see that she meant when she said, where you go, I'll go. The second thing that we can see is that she has great respect for her mother-in-law. This, this plea, let me go. Allow me to go. Great respect. And three, we see that there is knowledge of the law. We get this from Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. We are not told when she acquired this knowledge, but it's most likely that Naomi hasn't been wasting time. Conversations have been taking place. You are being introduced into the covenantal relationship with Yahweh. The law of the Old Testament must to be known. So we, we can understand that Naomi has been taking time to explain, to teach young Ruth the law of the Lord. And maybe the fourth and most interesting thing to notice is this, and this is like, uh, as last week, this is the micro lesson for today. Ruth, the foreigner widow, and is not just moping around. To go to the field, she needs to wake up early, probably before sunrise. Because the fields are not in the city, they're out of the city. So you have to move yourself to that, to that place. So she's not in a state of preoccupation, 
feeling self-pity and just joining Naomi in her bitterness about their current situation. But instead, we see that she keeps herself occupied, not preoccupied, but occupied, and she's doing something. So again, we have a somehow subtle approach to the hidden providence of God. Naomi and Ruth are back in the land and just happen in time for the barley harvest. And it so happened that there was a close relative, an old friend. And what do you know? It so happens that this man of wealth and influence owns a field. And this man is coming down to this field. Just a bunch of happy coincidences, right? Alistair Beggs, in one of his sermons, um, based on, on, on the second chapter of Ruth, I think he made a, a, an hour 15 sermon just on the first two verses of Ruth. He says, you'll notice that it involves endeavor. It wasn't a provision that God had made where he had people stand with buckets of grain for folks who just didn't want to work. This wasn't some social welfare program where if you didn't want to work, you just hung around and eventually somebody came by and gave you stuff, which other people were working very, very hard to get. No, he made a wonderful provision because it it demanded that the honest endeavor of the poor. But the honest endeavors of the poor were rewarded. And so they went to work for food. They're not begging for food. They're working for their sustain. Maybe we need to consider that when we're joining efforts with organizations and different ONGs. It's a different, very different depiction of what we see today, right? Something to consider. Ruth is being proactive. She's not waiting for Naomi to tell her what to do. She's not focused on the circumstances and and trying to find justification to to just stay in bed all day. Instead, she wakes up early, respectfully asks Naomi to allow her to go, and she's not saying to Naomi that she needs to come. Stay home. Rest. Naomi is older than Ruth. I don't know what other interaction was in that morning. Maybe they're having breakfast. Together and, and, and Ruth says to Naomi, I'm, I'm going to go. Can I go? She's asking for permission. She's, she's acting in selfless love. Again, the hesed of, of, of Ruth demonstrated in, in, in her attitude to Naomi. Selfless love to go and to get for herself and Naomi. She is, she's providing for for. For Naomi as well. She knows that her situation is not the most favorable. One, one she mentions, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She knows that as she goes to the field, she knows that she is in, she is in need of favor and grace. Now what we know about Boaz is that he is a man of great wealth. And this expression is actually a title. The original language refers to a valiant warrior. And this is because Boaz is a man of power and influence, but also someone who has some form of authority. Military, remember this is the period of the judges. There's a lot of battles. There's a lot of wars. There's a lot of fighting. So Boaz has probably been involved in in these battles himself. He has some form of political authority. And obviously, economically, 
So this man could not only have an unusual capacity of obtaining property, but also he was very capable of protecting it. And in this time, the common practice was to have one single large field dedicated to one specific crop. I just talked to, um, I, I already forgot your name, but he, he works with, with plants. And, and what, would they, what they were doing is that they will have this field, this huge field, and they will extend the crops so they will get the most of it. One single crop, they wouldn't mix the, the crops. But then, since the crops is too big to be managed by only one person, they will be divided in different fields, um, similar to what we do nowadays with acres. So the field will be separated into acres, and a certain amount of acres, a, a, a piece of the field will be administrated um, through various owners, which one of them belongs to Boaz. So again, it happened, and I'm going to be doing this a lot, and for those who are just hearing, I'm just doing quotations, air quotations. So I'm going to try to do, uh, make some emphasis with my words for those who are just listening. But So it happened that Ruth went to the one that belonged to Boaz. As she moved into covenantal faith, she keeps being met by the providential hand of the Lord. So we have these two indicators, the family of Elimelech and the wealthy and influential relative and the field of Boaz. So see how verse 4 presents this. Uh, verse 4. And behold. And one of the things that I want to do while I'm trying to um, teach and preach through this book of Ruth is that I want to take my time to show how am I reading the text so you can apply that to yourself. And you probably have noticed that I tend to stop a lot in singular words or concepts and the beginnings of the chapters because they gave us indications of what's going on or what the author wants us to focus on. So in verse 4 of chapter 4, of, of chapter 2, sorry, it says, And behold, as in saying, take a moment to consider everything that has happened till now. Could we dare to say that all of this just happened? More air quotations. My dear, we might struggle to recognize the goodness of the Lord. We might want to change our name for Mara. But behold, slow down, be quiet, consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And remember, He is at work and in control. So Boaz approaches the reapers with his blessing. The Lord be with you. To what they reply, the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. It is not known if, um, if this was a common salute, a form of greeting, or if this may be Boaz's own personality. I tend to incline to the second. I think this is Boaz. This is how he, he approaches a group of people and, and he just shout, The Lord be with you. And people know Boaz. So they reply back, The Lord bless, um, the Lord bless you. But again, this is uh, a phrase, a literary device maybe, 
used by the author to bring again that the Lord is in the midst of everything and that Boaz is a man of faith. We also can assume that Boaz is somehow invested in these people, the harvesters, because he quickly identifies someone who doesn't know. He doesn't know. So he knows his workers. He knows his people. And immediately he turns and says, whose young, young woman is this? And the explanation provided by the servant reveals a couple of, de of details that are very important. We can see that the story of Naomi is well known among the people. And people know, and secondly, that people know that she came back with no husband, no sons, but with a young Moabite woman. The testimony of Ruth's character is quite encouraging as well. So she came and she, was, she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And keep in mind, if you haven't worked harvesting by hand or, or using manual tools to harvest, it is a very demanding job. It's, it's, it's hard job. It's not easy doing it by hand. I, I've, seen, I've seen the machines, but by hand is different. Cutting the grain with sickles, binding the grain into sheaves, gleaning, that is, gathering any stalks of grain left behind. This is what Ruth is, going, is doing. Transporting, threshing um, to lose the grain, and winnowing, tossing the grain in the air so that the straw and chaff might blow away and then bagging. It is a lot of work, and Ruth is not used to this. She's not a farmer. She's not a, 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 a reaper by herself. But she remained for the day in the field. And this is the reputation of Ruth building up for herself. And she could have been in the field for just a couple of hours. But this is God's providential plan in disguise. And we get to see how he makes the path of Boaz and Ruth to cross. And those who are married might remember, candidly, how you met your spouse. And to me, it just happened that at a wedding of a cousin, I met an Australian young lady that was serving in Chile, in Chile throughout a missionary organization named Operation Mobilization. Maybe the most uh, well-known ministry is the, the library ship that they have that goes around the world, if you ever heard about it. Um, after a couple of weeks, I reached out to her and asked if the organization needed people to do things. I had the time. I was unemployed, and I saw it as a good opportunity. It just happened that I was unemployed. Um, and I asked if they needed people to help, and that is how I just happened to end up serving in a children's ministry for a couple of years. But also, thanks to my impeccable knowledge and manage of the English language, I was the interpreter and translator for missionaries. Um, pastors and teachers that will come to, to do um, seminars and classes for the people doing missionary training or visiting different churches throughout the country. And is this how it just happened that I got invited to, um, to do a training in Canada to learn about religions and how to evangelize people from these specific um, religious groups? And it so happened that over there, on the other side of the world, I got to meet another Australian young lady, one that just happened to have left her job, her family, and her country to serve her Lord in that foreign land. Then what happened to become my wife and the mother of my two beautiful sons. And this is the hap happen in life, the hap happens in life. Not in luck. We don't, we don't believe in luck. Maybe we, providence. <laughs> Let's get used to, to the word providence. Uh, it, it's been difficult for me because it's not a word that I even use in, in Spanish, but 
No luck. We don't live by luck. We live in the providence of the Lord. God's providential control. And think about the haps in your life. Where were you born? All the people that you have met. The experiences that you have lived. None of those have just happened. It is the sovereignty of the Lord at work all the time. From verses 4 to 16, we see the interaction between Ruth and Boaz. And what comes out from this portion is Boaz's character and how God intends to use him. And I depict Boaz as a man's man. Boaz, it's a dude. It's a bloke. I don't know if it's a, it's, a, it's a bloke. Boaz is the bloke. And take a look with me. The first thing that we hear from Boaz is the greeting to the reapers. The Lord be with you. And remember, this is the times of the judges. So to see faith of men, of this man publicly, it's, it's very encouraging. There's always a remnant, a faithful remnant to the Lord. This is a godly man and invite us and invites the reapers and invite everyone who hears this to consider the presence of the Lord and how we display our character and our beliefs. It will be that for some people God is only real with us when we are church. Some people believe in God only on Sunday. They don't believe in God from Monday to Saturday. Sunday, they're singing about the sovereignty of God and the goodness of the Lord. Monday, it doesn't exist. And maybe you're not thinking actively in that way. Maybe you're not thinking like, oh, I don't, I don't think or I don't believe that the, the Lord is always with me. But how is our conduct throughout the rest of the week from, from Monday to Saturday? Could we just, by the way that we are living our lives, displaying that we actually believe that God is with us in all, at all times, in all situations? See that Boaz greets, the Lord be with you in a barley field with those working for him. And we taking, are we taking God with us everywhere we go? It is manifested for those around us that the way that we conduct ourselves is a manifestation of this reality. And think about this. The young Moabite, new in the faith, gets to see this display of godliness and the encouragement of a God that is everywhere, even in the field, in the barley field. Boaz is someone that's carrying around the presence of the Lord. And people around him are influenced by that. Boaz is the man. He's the man. And the second thing that we see is how Boaz addresses Ruth. Now listen, my daughter. Do not, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. The words, my daughter, might indicate that Boaz is of an older age than Ruth. 
He takes an affectionate approach to her, and he provides for her not only a place to collect food, but also a place where she might be protected. Again, Boaz is the man. Not only providing a place for her to gather food, but also a place where she can be protected. He is making sure that she will be protected. And I'm pretty sure that no one wants to go again, Boaz. And in my head, and this is my, just my imagination, I portray Boaz big. I don't know. I think of a Chris type of thing and a horse walking around, you know, looking important, like powerful, respectful. When he says, like, the Lord be with you, and the people will be like, oh, the Lord bless you. <laughs> Ruth went that morning looking for food, but the Lord has provided much, much more at this moment. A man that despite her background offers provision and protection. And look at verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Ruth's response is highly contrasting with today's entitlement. People think that other people, and even God, are just to meet every want or need they have. We trick ourselves if we think that we just deserve good things to happen to us. That, that you owe me. The entitlement mentality, the sense of deservingness or being owed a favor... When little or nothing has been done to deserve special treatment, it is the you owe me attitude. Ruth, on the contrary, humbled herself. Why me? I'm just a foreigner. Ruth cannot escape the fact that she is different. But that doesn't matter. In fact, this aspect of Ruth's background only brings more glory to God. Because it is in the future when we get to see... The greater picture and to say God works even through foreigners from people of every nation to accomplish these purposes. And I'm, and I'm so glad to see people from different nationalities in this place. Because it actually displays the glory of God that he's bringing people together from every place, from everywhere he wants to. And he brings them together and, they, and he says, you belong together. It's a beautiful thing. Boaz carries the presence of the Lord, acts as provider and protector. And also we see that Boaz blessed Ruth. War gets around and good deeds are noticeable. They make an impression. And this is what Boaz has seen in Ruth. Ruth verse, um, chapter 2 verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz saw behind Ruth's, Ruth's past. Knowing she was a Moabite, Boaz knew she was in the past time a worshiper of Chemosh. But that was in her past. And if you do a little bit of research, you will find that the worship of Chemosh was actually a blood-stained worship. Stained with the blood of babies and children. They will often sacrifice children to worship this deity of, of them. 
but he knows that Ruth has left her leaving parents behind. And not only that she left family, but also her land. And Boaz recognized that for Ruth, that for Ruth there is something greater. There's something bigger, something more important. She left Moab to come to the land of Israel. But before that, she came to the God of Israel. So she came to the land, but she came to the Lord first. Boaz see the testimony of Ruth's life, how she moved in faith and put her whole trust in Yahweh that made an impression of Boaz, that, that the, the attention of Boaz is being drawn to her. Ultimately, Boaz offers Ruth a meal. Now things are getting interesting. Remember that the book of Ruth is a literary yule, and it is so well written, and as we keep reading, we start to see aspects of the type of history we're reading. And, and not that it's only about this, but there is some romance in here. Now, we can't deny that. The, the story is getting cute. Verse 14, and at a mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. He passed it to her, not around. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Boaz initiates this rather strange interaction. And you see, Israelites would not eat with, with Gentiles. They would not eat and share food with, with foreigners. They will make them go and eat somewhere else. But Boaz offers food and drink. So much that she was satisfied and had plenty of leftovers. Boaz in his interaction with Ruth doesn't relate to her as a foreigner. But he takes a friendly approach, a, a friendly close manner. He is seeking a development from their first interaction in the field. And now he's bringing aspects of hospitality. A godly man and single, and a godly woman and single, wink, wink, something happening here. For those single, food. Think about food. It's a good advice. It's a good binder. Boaz is the gift that keeps on giving. He commands his servant to take care of Ruth, verse 15. When, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also put out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Truly, Boaz is depicting the character of a godly man, a godly given man. There's definitely something brewing. There's something going on. And we'll see about what, um, that, that as we move in the history, but Boaz keeps on giving to Ruth. What, what does she think of him? We don't know just yet. But what we know is that the story of Ruth is in fact a story about the Lord. We've seen how he directs Ruth to Boaz, so we know that he directs his people. And we've seen how the Lord has provided for Ruth through Boaz, so we know that he, the Lord, provides for his people. In the last portion of this chapter, verses 17 to 23, we go back to meet with Ruth and Naomi at the end of the day, and how the Lord is now preparing Ruth to, for Boaz. Ruth goes back with enough food for weeks 
And it wasn't common to get in that much. She had a, a big, I don't know what, what they would be using, sacks or, or you know, wheelbarrows or something, but she, she had a lot of food, a lot of grain, plus the leftovers. And Ruth tells Naomi about her day in the field. And it just happened that the name of Boaz gets dropped. And note the change of attitude in Naomi. The Lord bless him, verse 20. The Lord bless him. In verse 20, she's starting to realize that, that this is all from the providential hand and care of God. Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In chapter 1, Naomi was blinded to the providential grace of the Lord. Now she's rejoicing in it. She glorifies the Lord for it. She knows that the Lord has always been at work. She's starting to see hope for the future and encourages Ruth to stay near Boaz. Some lessons that we can take from, from this chapter. One, God is a providence-working God. God is in control. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. And you should trust Him. Secondly, God hears and answers prayers. The Lord hears when His people pray. And in His time and His perfect way, He always answers. In chapter 1, Naomi prays for Ruth and says, May the Lord bless you. And the Lord does bless Ruth. And then in this chapter, we see that Naomi prays for Boaz. May the Lord bless him. And the Lord does bless him. All the prayers so far being answered. Third, God is a provision-making God. He provided for two widows food. But not only that, the man who he provided to provide was also the man whom he provided to link to the Messiah. The man that God is bringing into the life of Ruth and Naomi, it is also the man that the Lord is going to use to bring the lineage of the Messiah. So we have seen in this chapter how God is always at work. He's always present in the life of his people. How about us? How about us? Can we recognize the reasons why at times are we failing to see God's hand in the ordinary events of our lives? Can we recognize the reasons why at times we are failing to see God's hand in the ordinary events of our lives? Remember, remember to behold, slow down, slow down in quiet times, seek for the Lord. See where his hand is moving. Three good advices. Read the Bible, but do it responsibly. Do it in dependence of the Spirit of God. Second, seek wise counsel from others when, when we don't know what to do. The Lord has allowed us to be part of a big family with a lot of people, with a lot of experience in different areas. You can seek for advice. You don't have to do what they tell you. <laughs> but it's good that you go and ask for advice. 
Pride is not a, a pretty thing. Humbleness, the Lord says that he exalts the humble. He resists the prideful. In humbleness, I assure you that if in humbleness you are going around seeking for advice, the Lord will exalt you. The, the Lord will direct you. And three, pray for illumination. Wisdom. And that you can be remembered of what you already know about God's will. Sometimes we're focused on the, on, the, on the micro aspects of God's will. And maybe we need to take some time to think on the macro aspects of God's will. And the book of Ruth is showing us that. We go and we fix in the micro just one family, one man. But it feels like we're walking backwards, looking, looking forward, and we start seeing a, a greater picture. We start with Elimelech, but now we have Naomi, and then we have Ruth, and now we have Boaz. And we know by, by, by the end of this book, we're going to have David. And we know that as we move backwards, looking forward, we get to see our precious Jesus. So we go from the micro detail of one man's family to the macro detail of, plan, of God's sovereign plan. It's a beautiful thing. Consider the things in your life that just happened. And see how events of your life can illustrate God's providence. It might be a beneficial thing for you to consider this. And it would, be, it would bring thanksgiving. Considering the, the, the providence of God will bring thanksgiving and, and a testimony of the faithfulness of the Lord to your life. And maybe there are other ways that the Lord is speaking to you as we go through this portion of Scripture. And, and I really hope so. Keep thinking through the week. Take time to consider what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing, and what he has promised to do. In this chapter, we see, we keep seeing that God is a God that cares. That is ultimately why he sent his only son. He cares. That's why he's doing what he's doing. He cares. The story of Ruth reminds us so far of two things. In chapter 1, God is willing to come to those he will call and meet them in the road to make them turn to him. And in chapter 2, we see that God is working all things he knows. He knows all things, so he's working all things. He knows our need and he's able to provide for every one of them. Here's where we are reminded of the goodness of our Lord. He has provided for us not, not a change of circumstances necessarily, but a change of heart. A heart that could not give a single bit of life is now changed into one that pumps life abundantly and eternal. We pump in our hearts life abundant and eternal through Jesus Christ. It's in, in Christ our Savior. Our God has provided justification, forgiveness of sin, of sin, and reconciliation with Him. We are given, gifted a Redeemer, and that held us through His stripes and wounds, one that took the punishment that was ours to bear. In Christ, our sins taken, and His wounds are healing, and His blood the cleanse of our transgressions. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29 John um, chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming forward to him. John will, will baptize him people. 
And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, behold, brothers, feast in the life that he gives. Sister, lift your faces. Lift your heads and see, taste what he has done. Sinners, behold, together our King, turn your suffering into song. Take on the joy of the hope of the glory of God. Grasp his new mercies every day. Take your burdens to him and meet them with his grace. How great, how precious and majestic is the name of our King and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The Lord who came, the Emmanuel, the God with us, the God within us. So I'll leave you with this, and I'll see if you have been paying attention. The Lord be with you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your provision. Yahweh Jireh. The Lord has provided. And it has provided a lamb to take away the sin of the world. And we gather today to worship that lamb. The worthy one. The one seated at, at his rightful throne. We bow to him. Why did we have found favor in your eyes? A mystery for us, but a blessing to our souls. I pray, Lord, that you will bring joy, peace, steadfastness to our lives as we consider what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. We pray for wisdom. We pray for you, Lord. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our King Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Thank you.